so quiz time. Uh, first part of the quiz will be easy. Second part of the quiz will be hard. All right? So first part of the quiz, uh, the, the song will come let us adore him. What is the activity that the song is repeatedly calling us to do? Yeah, that's right. Wasn't that hard, all right? <laughs> You're like, you kind of gave it away. I know, I'm trying to help you. All right? Um, the, the song is actually, oh, oh, come all ye faithful. But again and again and again and again in the song, like nine times or more, depending on what version you're looking at, we are called to adore Christ the Lord. In fact, um, there are some people who think like that's the title of the song. You can Google, oh, come let us adore him. You can Google, oh, come all you faithful, and you get the same results, right? Now, who, who is the, the hymn that we're being called to adore? Yeah. Christ the Lord, Jesus. Again, it's, it's, I'm not tricking you yet. That's yet to come, all right? Um, it's, it's, it just, we are called in this song to adore Christ the Lord. See, the, the, the theme of the thong, song is really pretty simple. It, the song is saying, hey, you know, Christmas is a time to worship Jesus. You know, like whether you're somebody here on earth, whether you're an angel in heaven, whether you're a saint that's gone on to glory, the song is saying, hey, you should behold him, you should sing to him, you should give him glory, come and adore Christ the Lord. The, the message is very simple. It doesn't matter who you are or where you find yourself, Christmas is meant to be a time where we worship Jesus. Now, that being said, it, it's... it's, it's um, a fascinating thing to me that begs the question then of, okay, if, if Christmas is a time where we should worship Jesus, then, then what does it mean to worship? If, if, if the song tells us we should worship Jesus, and I would agree we should, then how should we worship Jesus? And if you have an answer to that question, that, that begs another one, which is simply this, why should we worship him that way? If you say, hey, this is how you should go about worshiping Jesus in the Christmas season, then my question for you is, okay, then why? Says who? What is the source of authority that you would point to for why you, should, you would tell people this is the way you should worship? See, it's a funny thing. People get really emotional about this topic of worship, especially church people. Church people will argue and fight about why, about how you should worship Jesus. Like, I, I have watched church people invest all kinds of money into the church if worship is going the way they want it to. I have watched church people try and hold the church hostage with their wallet if it's not. I've watched church people, like, they will serve like crazy if they're getting the kind of worship they like. I've watched them fold their arms and refuse to participate if they're not. I've watched people choose their church based on the style of worship. I have watched people leave their church when the style changed. We get really emotional about how you should worship. But it's also been my observation that very few church people have thought deeply about why they say you should worship that way. And what is the legitimate source of authority behind that why? In fact, in my experience, for most people in church, worship gets defined by personal experience and personal preference. So, for example, like I'll go to an event, be it church or small group or camp or a concert, and somebody will say, hey, let's worship. 
And then an activity will follow that that person defined as worship. And I begin to think, well, that's what worship must be. I define worship by my personal experience. Or, or I'll have a set of experiences that somebody defined as worship for me. And some of them I relate to and some of them I don't. Some of them I prefer. Some of them I really don't like so much. And, and I'll begin to, 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 to say, well, these things are more legitimately worship than those things. And as chance would have it, the things that I prefer and resonate with, those are the ones that I define as worship. My personal preference defines worship. Now, preference and experience, they're just part of how worship works. Nobody's denying that. You, you have experiences, you have preferences. I, I'm not mad at you if you do. I'm not saying that's wrong. However, however, we need to recognize, especially as church people, that our experiences and our preferences, they are just that. Our experiences and our preferences. They are not a source of authority for how somebody should do something. In fact, the only person who has the right for their personal experiences and preferences to serve as a source of authority for other people is God himself. Having your person serve as a source of authority for how other people should live their lives, that, that is the job description of divinity, not humanity. Which means that when I try and let my personal experience and my personal preference serve as a source of authority for how you should worship, really what I'm doing is playing God in your life. And that's just, it's not a role that any of us are qualified for, and it's a role that all of us would do better to stay away from. Now, while I would argue that our personal experiences and our personal preferences are not a legitimate source of authority for how we should worship, I would also argue that the Bible is. That in the Bible, God himself reveals to us how worship is to be defined and described. And so, what we're going to do today is we're just going to turn to the Old Testament of the Bible, and we're going to look at how it defines and describes worship for us. And we could do the same thing in the New Testament and get the same answers, but I, I've got to pick one or the other for time's sake and for a number of reasons. I've gone with the old today. But what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to explore this and see what it would teach us about how we should worship Jesus this season and why we should worship him that way. Now, if you were to do a, a, an exhaustive word study on the word worship in the Old Testament, there, there would be a couple of things that you should pick up on. W one of them is that there are two primary Hebrew words that get translated out of Hebrew into English as worship. And then the second thing you should notice that there are four main activities that get connected to those two Hebrew words to describe to us what worship looks like. Now, just, just for the sake of four, full disclosure, there are more than just four activities that get tied to those two Hebrew words, but there are four main ones. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to look one at a time at these four activities and see what it is to worship according to the Bible. So here we go. Activity number one. Worship, to worship is to bow down. To worship is to bow down. More, far and away, more than any other activity, worship gets described this way. Whether it's, whether it's um, Jacob bowing down to worship on his bed, 
whether it's Israelites bowing down as, as they recognize that God cares about them as they're enslaved, whether it is um, um, Gideon bowing down because God's interpreted his dream again and again and again and again, you find people bowing down and worship. This activity is connected to worship. Now, what, what, what it means to worship as we bow down, the kind of heart that we're trying to, to, to see there, this gets illustrated for us in, in, in a scene between Joseph and his brothers way back in the book of Genesis. Like, if, if you remember Joseph and his brothers in, in Genesis, Joseph is a younger brother. He's got a whole pile of older brothers, all of whom hate his guts. And they hate his guts because daddy plays favorites and Joseph is daddy's favorite. So unless you're an older sibling who had annoying younger siblings, you kind of feel sorry for Joseph because it's like it's not his fault, right? You know, he didn't make dad, you know, you know favor him. And, he, and, and so you feel bad for Joseph that all his brothers hate him until Joseph has his dream. Now, in his dream, Joseph and his brothers are all out harvesting grain, and um, his, you know, one of his you know, you know, piles of grain or one of his you know, like bushels or stalks of grain, it stands up in the middle of the field. And all of his brothers, each of them have one of their bundles of grain, you know, come and, and make this circle around Joseph's bundle, and they all fall down. They all bow down before Joseph's bundle. And Joseph being a young teen, somehow comes up with this idea that maybe it would be a good idea to share this dream with my brothers who cannot stand me, right? So here's, here's the deal. If you're a parent and you have a teenager and they are forever doing just stupid things, if nothing else, Joseph's story should give you hope. Because as a teenager, he is completely relationally inept. Enough so that you're like, you kind of deserved your brothers not liking you, right? Later on in life, Joseph becomes one of the wisest, most relationally savvy people we will meet in the scripture. So there's hope for your kid, right? But Joseph does this. Tells his brothers about this dream. And his brothers say to him, you know, they, they, they say to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. See, in this context, for Joseph's brothers to bow down to him, it, it, would, have, it would have been a, a physical posture that reflected how the relationship worked. For his brothers to bow down to him would have been for his brothers to, to, to humble themselves before him. To revere him, to honor him, to show him respect. For Joseph's brothers to bow down to him would have been to, as good as saying out loud, hey, you are sovereign over us. You are superior to us. You, Joseph, you have the right to rule our lives. Now again, more than any other activity, the Old Testament connects to this idea of worship, this idea of bowing down. And the idea is that worship is about coming to God with a heart that's humble before him, a heart that, that seeks to revere him and honor him and respect him, a heart that is saying to God, 
You're superior. You're sovereign over my life. You, you have the right to reign. You have the right to rule my world. And, and bowing down, it's simply the posture that everybody can see that, that's meant to reflect what's going on in our heart. Now, ultimately, the posture really doesn't matter. Because I can have the posture. If I don't have the heart, it's not worship. But, but this idea is that when we bow down, it's reflecting a heart that's humbled itself before God and acknowledged his right to rule in our lives. So activity number one, if we're going to worship, it happens when we bow down. Activity number two, second activity that the Old Testament will point us to when it comes to worship is to serve. To worship is to serve. Now, there's a number of places where the Old Testament will, will talk about worship and connect it with this activity of service. One of them is in the Old Testament law. You see this in a couple of places. For example, in Exodus, we'll, we'll read, um, you shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds. So in the Old Testament law, you, you've got uh, you know, prohibitions against worship to false gods. Here's one of them. Or you get another one in Deuteronomy where he'll talk about, hey, if your hearts turn away and you don't obey me, but you're drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. Now, both of these passages, they, they connect this idea of service and worship. And they do so in some, some really fascinating ways that we'll unpack a little bit further, but let, let's illustrate this first, right? And to illustrate this, we'll go over to Daniel chapter 3, where you find King Nebuchadnezzar uh, on, on the plains of Dura, and he's, got, he's just, just got done erecting his massive statue, and he's got all his government officials out there with him, and he's done this to test their loyalty. You go back and you study the secular history of the time, Nebuchadnezzar has just managed to squash a revolt against his government. Now he's trying to figure out, like, which of my government officials are loyal? Which of my government officials are crooked? Who do I need to get rid of? Who do I get to keep? And so he's brought everybody out there, erected this massive statue, and he tells them, the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the palstree, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that I have set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And as chance would have it, he still has the blast furnace that he used to construct the statue right on out there. It's, it's all fired up, hot and ready to go. Now, just a side note. He tells them, hey, when you hear the sound of the flute, the lyre, the horn, the trigon and the palstry, whatever those are, the bagpipes, right, all playing at the same time, you're going to bow down. Now, I won't speak for you, but that sounds like musical torture to me, like, like a Blackpink or a Beyonce concert or something, right? Like, I wonder how many of these guys bowed down just to make the music stop, right? At any rate plays the music, all the government officials bow down, except three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when their government co-workers who are jealous of them find out that they don't bow down, they go run into Nebuchadnezzar to narc them out right away. Because in that day and age, 
The way that worked in politics is if you're, your opponent, your political opponent, if you got something on them, you use that, to, you just leverage that to get on top of them. They, they, they didn't live in the world of political transparency and integrity that we enjoy today, right? Yeah. So, so they go to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar hears this, and he is just out of his mind, mad. He's going he's gonna to squash this next rebellion before it grows into something. So he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him, and he says to them, hey, is it true? Is it true that, that you won't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? In other words, hey, we're going to deal with this and we're going to deal with this now. I've had all the rebellion I'm putting up with. Either, either you guys are going to live for me or you're going to cease living. Either you're going to obey or you're going to burn. Look, look, what God is going to save you from me now? You, you, you think your God's going to save you? Forget it. Either you're going to obey me or we're going to be done here. I love, love, love their response. We preach a whole sermon just on their response. He, 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 he's like, you really think your God's going to save you from me right now? And their response is this. But even if he does not, even if our God lets us die, even, even, even if our God doesn't do what we hope or want him to do, even if we do everything right and God doesn't come through for us the way that we wish he would, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods. We are not going to worship the golden image you have set up. Now again, what you have happening with these three Hebrew kids, it ties into what we saw in those passages from the Old Testament law. So let, let's bring them up again. It says, don't worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds. Or, hey, if your hearts turn away and you cease to obey me, but you're drawn away and you worship other gods and serve them. See, throughout the Old Testament, there's this connection between Living a life of obedience to God and worship. One is the other. When you obey God, that's an act of worship. Throughout the Old Testament, you have people who are presented with a worldview of their culture and a prescription to live life in a certain way, and it's contrary to the worldview of their God and the directives that he's given them. And every time somebody says no to the worldview of their culture and they embrace the worldview of their God and they say no to how their culture is telling them to live and they're saying yes to how God's calling them to live, every time that gets defined as an act of worship. You want to you worship God? You're going to serve him. You're going to obey him with your life. That's activity number two. All right, activity number three. Number three comes, um, and it's to sacrifice. Sacrifice. This gets illustrated for us again in the book of Genesis. Uh, you go back to Genesis 22, you have Abraham and Isaac, right? And, and we read, um, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey 
And I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. So here we go, another, another question. This one shouldn't be too hard. Depends on all my Bible scholars, right? What is the activity that Abraham is about to go and engage in that he's defining here as worship? Yeah, he's getting ready to offer up his son as a burnt sacrifice. You want to talk about activities that maybe turn your kids off to church? <laughs> Just saying, right? strap them down to an altar. You got the fire in one hand, the knife in the other hand, and you're just waiting for the Lord to tell you not to take them out, right? Abraham gets up next week. He's like, Isaac, come on, buddy. Let's get ready for Sunday school. Whatever! (laughs) You know, the point here is this. When you read through the Old Testament, you have the Old Testament sacrificial system. Part of what that system is all about is people are taking what God has given them what he's blessed them with. And they're giving a portion of it back to God. And it's called worship. Like you read through the Old Testament with an eye for it, again and again and again and again. People come and they bring the first fruit of their, their field and, and the, 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 the firstborn of their flocks. It's called worship. They show up at the tabernacle and the temple with offerings and sacrifices and gifts, and it's called worship. They bring the, 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 the first and the best of what God has blessed them with. They, they, they give back to God a percentage of what he's first given them for the funding of his kingdom. And it's repeatedly referred to as worship. Activity number three, to, to, to sacrifice, to give back to God, that's worship. All right, one more. Activity number four. And this one we've all been waiting for. Singing. Singing. Like throughout the Bible, this, 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 singing songs to God gets connected to worship. One of the places that happens is in the book of Psalms, which just makes sense because the book of Psalms are ancient Hebrew prayers that they in turn set to music, and that was their worship music in their church service. In fact, it, it was hundreds of years after the, the book of Acts before the church actually let the congregants sing something other than the Psalms in church. Now, about worship and singing, the book of Psalms will say things like, um, all the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Or, or we'll read elsewhere in the, songs, the Psalms, all the nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Or, or we read, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, he is holy. And the idea is really very simple. There are songs that we can sing to God that are meant to praise him, exalt him, honor him. These are worship. Now, here's what's interesting to me about this. This, of all the activities we've talked about, when we we say, what is worship? This is the one that, that comes to mind first and foremost for us. Just keep your seats, but if I was to say, hey, everybody stand and let's worship, you would expect that we were getting ready to sing. Because more than any other activity, this is the one that we associate with worship the most. And again, this is the one we get emotional about. What kind of songs are we going to sing? What kind of music? What kind of instruments are we going to use? Let's fight about this. Let's split a church over this. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. Even though this is the one that we feel most deeply about, even though this is the one that comes to mind 
first for us when we say, what is worship? Far and away of all the activities that we've discussed, this is the one that the Bible associates with worship the least. Like it's not even close. Of all the activities that the Bible associates with worship that we've discussed today, singing is the one that it associates with worship the least. It's still worship. It's still a legitimate form of worship. It's just that church people tend to place a different priority on this form of worship than the Bible does. Fascinating to me. So, let's go back to our question. Our our carol says, hey, Christmas is a time to worship Jesus. Okay, well then, how should we worship Jesus? Well, I would say we should worship Jesus the way that the Bible teaches us to worship. That, that this Christmas season, we would worship Jesus well as we bow and as we serve and as we sacrifice and as we sing. That, that if we want to adore Christ the Lord this Christmas, that, that we come to him with hearts that are ready to bow down with hearts that are humble before him, that want to respect and revere and honor him, hearts that are ready to say, you're in charge. You you have the right to rule my life. That's, 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 again, that is the one far and away that gets connected to worship most. And I would argue that it is so because it's meant to be foundational for all the other pieces. And one of the best ways for that heart to be reflected in our lives is we serve him. Like you want to turn up, you know, the temperature for worship in your life this Advent season. Take some time and just look honestly at your world and ask yourself, where where have I bought in to my culture's worldview over God's? And let that go and embrace your God's worldview. Honestly ask yourself, Where am I doing life my culture's way instead of God's? Every time you choose to embrace God and his worldview and live the way he's called you to, that is worship. If we're going to adore Christ the Lord this season, then in the midst of a culture that's forever trying to drive us to be consumers who are going to get, 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 we should be people who give. We take some of what God has blessed us with and we give it back to him for the building of his kingdom. Like you you want to worship this season? Again, Advent Lights, it's just a host of opportunities where you can be generous. And if you want to worship this season, sing. At home, in your car, in the shower, here at church, come come on Christmas Eve. We're going to sing carols. There are going to be three things on Christmas Eve. We're going to have little baby Jesus in a manger. We're going to have Christmas carols, and we're going to have tight security. Because <laughs> right? like half the registrations are already gone, right? And, and like we've got limited capacity. It's a high volume kind of thing. Get online and get registered because James and his team aren't going to let you in the doors without your little ticket, right? Um, but come and worship. Here's the thing. The singing, it is meant to rest on the foundation of bowing and serving and sacrifice. It keeps our singing from being more than empty lip service. Jesus said it this way. He he said, 
These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. See, when worship starts with bowing and moves to serving and sacrifice, that keeps the singing something genuine and real. So come, all you faithful, joyful and triumphant, come, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him born to you, the King of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Come, let us adore him. Christ, our Lord. Would you pray with me, church? Father, just today, for those of us who are here and we're church people, for those of us who are watching online and we're church people, God, help us to have hearts that really worship you. That just bow down before you and seek to serve you day in and day out. And are generous because you're generous and we want to be like you. That sing songs that reflect who we are. Father, just if, if there's anyone with us today, if there's anyone watching online, and they're not church people, and they've never grabbed hold of the opportunity to surrender to Jesus, to, to acknowledge to him that he truly has the right to rule their lives, but they know they need to. We want to pray for those folks as well, and, and if that is you, I just want to invite you to pray with me. God, my life is broken. It's full of sin. I've worshipped all kinds of false gods. I didn't call them that. I didn't call it that. But that's what I've done. Forgive me. I need a Savior. In this moment, I want to put my hope, my faith in Jesus and his life, his death, and in his resurrection. I want to surrender myself to him and begin this journey where I serve him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.